This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go, every day giftable, every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification, and they're satisfying to scratch no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. All right, it's Film Study with Tim McCusick. It's a May 19th episode as we record this, and the Ravens have been really busy this past week, which you know means Ken's been busy. So, Ken McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I am doing well. And uh, Michael's joining us, as always. Michael, I saw that you were on another podcast this week. Yeah. Hey, hey guys. How are you both doing? Uh, yeah, I had an opportunity to be on the uh, RSP cast, Rookie Scouting Portfolio cast, with Matt Waldman. Uh, really one of my inspirations in this field for uh, why I am aspiring to do what I do. And uh, I was super humbled and just, you know, very, very grateful to be on with Matt. It was a really good time. 
He um, was very he was very good with you. Uh, first of all, he let you do all the talking, which was which was really good and very appropriate. Obviously, Matt's a very laid back kind of guy, but I thought you were excellent, uh, Michael. Just was a pleasure to listen to that thing. So I encourage anyone out there to take a listen. And Michael, they can where can they find that pod? So you can find it uh, if you check me out on Twitter or follow me on Twitter at A-B-U-K-A-R-I. That's at Abukari. Or you can check out Matt Waldman at Matt Waldman, M-A-T-T-W-A-L-D-M-A-N. Uh, or you could go to MattWaldmanRSP.com. I think he also links to all of his pods on his website. So either one of those avenues, you should be able to check it out. All right. So, guys. The Ravens have been really busy lately, and it's it's because of this whole the comp picks go away at this point, right? And that's why it seemed like the Ravens were kind of waiting for that point. Well, that's right. They, they've they've waited until I think it was the eighth of May, it made it the thirteenth of May, but whatever the date was, it is now passed. Sign whoever you want. Doesn't affect the comp pick formula, and uh, the Ravens currently. We don't know for sure what comp picks they have because it's dependent not only on the level of salaries, which are significant, but and, and they have some a third round pick uh, coming back for the for Mosley, but it's also dependent upon playing time. So if a player like Brent Urban, who's on the margin of the comp pick formula, were to not get a lot of playing time, he could drop off, and the Ravens would actually lose a fourth-round pick because of it, even though Urban's just at, uh, himself would only be worth a seventh in the formula. Because the Ravens lost John Brown, he's actually worth a fourth, is the guy they uh, uh, would uh, would pick up a pick for. So anyway, the, the, the guy who is, interestingly enough, on the bubble and may be nervously watching the play of Brent Urban in Tennessee is Justin Bethel, who the, the Ravens acquired as a, as a free agent for special teams. And if he does not play well, or if the Ravens are not doing well, or if any number of other things you can scenarios you can come up with where the Ravens just want a fourth-round pick and they're not going to get one back because of Urban, they may actually consider cutting Justin Bethel before that 10th week. They did sign him to a two-year deal for about $4 million. I believe they're on a hook for $2.5 million of that um, if they uh, let him go. But that would be honestly still better than, than paying the whole thing. So, uh, And it might be worth it to uh, effectively buy back that fourth-round pick. That is an interesting um sort of angle to that and not one that I was aware of actually until just just before the show that you told me about so uh that that's going to be you know something to definitely keep an eye on throughout the season and see how that plays out um so and and I'm learning about this like I said just as you brought it up so let me ask you uh with Urban so would it be better for Bethel if Urban played more or less well, if Urban plays more and if Urban plays well, that's the best situation basically for the Ravens. So there's, there, I don't know what quality of play consideration there are. There's definitely playing time considerations for Urban. So, but if he plays well, he'll play a lot, presumably. So if he plays, if if assuming he meets the standard, that bumps down what the Ravens can get for cutting Justin Bethel from a fourth to a fifth that they would likely recover, which is the Suggs signing. So, you know, the John Brown signing is what Urban has recouped for them. And it would be Beth, a, a cut of Bethel before week 10 would then recoup the fifth round pick for Suggs. So the pressure goes up if it's a fourth round pick. That's worth a lot more than a fifth, obviously. But a, but it, but a fifth round pick is still has considerable value. And, and depending on what, where the organization is going into week 10, they may really consider whether or not Justin Bethel has the value to justify staying on the roster. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I think I have a better understanding of it now. So yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. All right. So there were three guys that the uh, Ravens picked up and acquired this, I guess, week and a half, 10 days. Uh, Pernell McPhee, Shane Ray, and Michael Floyd. And those are the guys we want to get into kind of deep in this podcast. Yeah. I want to spend some time on each of those. Uh, Pr- Pernell McPhee we'll talk about first. He's the, the sixth Raven ever to return the team, return to the team after leaving as an unrestricted free agent. Now, there's a few other people who've been who've returned after being cut, but the guys who've who've returned after being a UFA are Orlando Brown, uh, Marquise Douglas, Patrick Johnson, uh, Meaki Kimoyatu, Brandon Stokely, and now McPhee will be the sixth. 
So uh, unusual. There have been some other two-term Ravens, like Jerome Sapp and others that were either cut or traded. But uh, but interesting that uh, that McPhee will be back under those terms. Yeah, I had a chance to check out um, six games, about six games, five, six games, um, when he was with Washington last year. And a couple things kind of kind of stood out to me. Um, people might remember after he left Baltimore and went to Chicago that he kind of struggled with some knee injuries uh, there in Chicago. And, and you know, both on both sides, the team side and then obviously McPhee, I read a an article where he actually said, Hey, I'm not surprised that Chicago released me. I would have done the same thing, you know, based on kind of how things worked out. So um, it was interesting to see how Washington managed his snaps. He actually played in all 16 games, but he only played more than 18 snaps once. Uh, and that was 24 snaps in week 17 uh, against the Eagles. So um, part of that could be due to who they had ahead of him. You know, they had Ryan Kerrigan, they had Preston Smith. Um, part of it could be a way to sort of manage that knee and and try to keep him in good shape and, and not sort of overwork him or overdoing. But the other thing that I really uh, liked in the snaps that I saw when he was on the field is there was really kind of a Suggs-like element to his impact on the game right it wasn't always about him making the play but he created opportunities for teammates to make plays and you're not going to see that if you just look at counting stats like you you really have to watch the games to see that but just give you a quick example uh he only played 15 snaps in the week one game versus the arizona uh, versus arizona and look arizona's o-line not very good last year so let's caveat that first but uh he had maybe three or four snaps in that game that, you know, because of his play contributed to some really positive things for Washington. There was a forced fumble uh, where, you know, he sort of rushed uh, outside of the right tackle and the right tackle was trying to sit inside and help uh, his right guard with the defensive tackle because he was kind of, you know, on the outside shade of the guards. So he was trying to kind of lean inside and help that right guard. But, um, McPhee's rush was so explosive upfield, the uh, right tackle had to come out and and really try to block McPhee. That gave the defensive tackle the edge on the right guard. He gets in on Sam Bradford, forces the fumble, and recovers the fumble. Uh, he has another rush where he's rushing from the left side, and he you know sort of starts out inside and then crosses the face of the left tackle, gets pressure on Bradford. Bradford, Bradford has to get the ball out, throws it high, and throws an interception. Uh, you know, in another play uh, later in that game, he has a tackle for loss uh, because he communicates pre-snap. You know, you can tell he sort of sees what's going on. He turns around to the linebacker behind him and he's like, look, he sort of hand signals. He's like, I'm going to spike inside. So, again, he crosses the left the left tackle's face, uh, occupies the left tackle and the left guard. So the guard can't climb up to the inside linebacker and the linebacker scrapes outside and makes a tackle on the running back for like a two yard loss. So, so kind of like a twist, except coming from level two. Yeah. And I and and I don't even know if it was, you know, sort of designed. I think he read the play, turned around to the linebacker and said, this is what I'm going to do. Here's what you do. And, uh, you know, it led to uh, a tackle for a loss. So that kind of impact. And and it's it's really almost eerie when you watch him because he he sort of his alignment is sort of like Suggs he plays way outside you know most uh, you see in a nine technique some of them line up kind of wide but Suggs had a tendency to be out even wider and even just his angle sort of takes that forty five degree angle to the ball there's a lot of things that look like uh, some things that he may have picked up from from Suggs while he was here so um, I think you're gonna have to manage his snaps. Uh, because of, of, you know, the knee issues that he's had in the past. But I think if you can do that, I think he can have an impact on the game. He's, he certainly makes your defense better when he's on the field. Well, you, you mentioned a couple things there with the absolute hallmarks of McPhee in his time at Baltimore. And one is that he made other pass rushers better. And the, in the 2014, especially when the Ravens had the big sack year, they had Doomerville and Suggs on the outside. And McPhee was primarily an inside rusher that year. They did mix him up. They, they had him as the third outside linebacker with some rushes from there. But he also had a lot of rushes from the inside, kind of like Zedarius Smith did, except McPhee was... I would say a cut above even where Zadarius Smith was last year. That year he had 26 quarterback hits and uh, was constantly beating double teams. There's, there's very few guys in the NFL. You know, Aaron Donald, 
a few other guys you named, J.J. Watt, but there aren't that many guys who really consistently can beat double teams. Not only could could Pernell McPhee draw them regularly, which was what created a lot of the opportunity on the outside for Suggs and Dumerville, for other you know rushing linebackers, but what was really great about it is McPhee was able to beat double teams. And I remember one game that year where he actually beat four separate double teams in a game. I never remember that ever seeing that again for any lineman. Where you know he's he's has a disruptive event in the game on four separate double teams beaten in one game, and uh, you know that was just it, it was very impressive, and and that's one thing I want to I want to hear about, but I do notice that he did not play much on the inside in Washington. He almost he almost exclusively played at outside linebacker, and was it was it you know a five seven or nine technique that means, and not a lot of the really explosive three tech we saw from him in 2014 in Baltimore. Right, right. That's what I saw in those six games. It was it, they they flipped sides with him at times, but he was almost always at that five, seven, or nine technique outside of the tackle. Um, could just be Washington scheme. Um, you know, maybe that's not something they did in terms of having a player in that Joker role um, who who we saw with Wink Martindale. So, uh, but I definitely think we'll see him in that role at times uh, now that he's back in Baltimore. Right. I think it makes all kinds of sense. Now, it could be that Ferguson becomes a guy who would be useful from the inside. But McPhee is a little bigger player. He obviously has a lot of ability to use his length well against double teams. You know, a lot of you, you, you see this occasionally talked about, but it's something always worth reinforcing is that, you know, a defensive lineman will, will know how to exploit the crease. But more importantly, he knows how to get long with one arm. And that's something McPhee was always very good at in terms of you're longer with one arm than you are with two. Very hard for the offensive lineman to keep two hands on you when you've got one long arm. Anyway, that's something McPhee did well, always was able to, to, to generate some good inside pressure from that. And I'd be real surprised if he didn't move back to primarily that. And, you know, when I say primarily – Maybe he has half his snaps from the inside, and because he's going to be more on pass rushing downs than on run downs, I would expect we'll see that. I also think one of the points you made earlier about the snap count management is going to be very key. I, I, I have very, what I think are reasonable objectives for Pramel McPhee. I'd like to see 200 to 275 snaps this year. Keep him healthy the whole year if you can. 15 snaps a game, I think that'd be terrific. Yeah, he was at 220 last year uh, with Washington. And like you said, primarily at that kind of outside linebacker spot. Um, I think I saw him drop in coverage twice in those <laughs> six right. So, you know, obviously that's that's probably not, not where you want to use him, uh, you know, a lot. So, yeah, I, I think that's going to be key to getting the most out of him. But there just was a real efficiency to his play when he was on the field. Yeah, he wasn't on the field a ton, but when he was there, if he wasn't making a play himself, he was doing something that contributed to help somebody else make a play. And I think that could be a really positive sign, uh, particularly with the Ravens sort of young group of uh, outside rushers, outside linebackers that they have right now, a veteran presence like that who can come in and who knows the game and knows formations and knows situations and can do things to help set those guys up and give them some some opportunities to be successful. One of the things that we saw at Appease and even Pagano before him in terms of their use of McPhee was bringing him up as a as a fresh pass rusher. So in 2012, particularly in the postseason, he had a lot of games where he didn't he almost didn't play in the first half. So he played four snaps or five snaps in the first half or something. And then all of a sudden, you know, he played 15 snaps in the second half to try and, uh, you, you know, make the most of his pass rush, especially when you need it on those high leverage plays in the fourth quarter. And particularly that win at New England where they came back with the 21 nothing second half in the 2012 playoffs. McPhee was the best player on the field in that second half, the best player defensively on the field. He had three passes defense, so I think they only they only counted two of them in the book. But uh, they did a wonderful job then, and Pease really did a wonderful job then of managing his snap count. And I think if anybody can do it just as well or even better, it's Martindale. He's He, he proved to be a, kind of a master at that last year, and I really look forward to how he can make best use of McPhee. Now, that said, do you believe McPhee's a sure thing to make this roster? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if you look at any of these three guys, I'm not sure if I feel like 
either uh you know any of the three are are a sure thing i'd probably give him the edge of the three now there's you know an age and an injury component to that you know he's going to turn 31 in december uh i talked about the the pre-existing knee issues he's had in the past shane ray is 26 uh, but he's also had some injury issues. I think his was a wrist issue uh, that's caused him to miss some time. So uh, maybe that's a component. And then, you know, they also have uh, a couple of guys on the roster already uh, who, you know, until this flurry of activity, I think we were all sort of thinking, OK, well, they looked at a couple other guys like Ziggy Ansa or whatever, and that didn't work out. And so now maybe Tyce Bowser, Tim Williams, Ferguson, you know, these guys are going to get the bulk of uh, the opportunity. But then they bring these guys in. So. When you throw all of that into the mix, uh, I'm not sure. That's a, that's a good point that you bring up. So I, I'm handicapping McPhee at about 50% personally to make this roster. I think there's, there's some residual chance of injury there. There's also you know something the Ravens have done before with players like Eric Williams and others is the cut before week one and then pick them up after week one to have a non-guaranteed salary beginning in week two and then you pay them week to week kind of thing. Now, I, I don't know if any of these guys are expecting that or planning for it, or if any of them, the Ravens feel like they can risk it because obviously another team could pick them up and guarantee their salary from the start of the season. They wouldn't want that. But uh, but all of these guys, because they're they're kind of, frankly, on the margin now in the NFL, uh, you know, are, are, are guys that, that this is a, this is a possibility for. Definitely. Definitely. And from that standpoint, that's where I'm with you on the uncertainty, sort of those those external factors kind of around him. But if it was just about on field play and if I could keep him right around 18 to 20 snaps a game, I definitely want him on the team <laughs> just based on what I saw from last year. Now, he'll be a year older. Um, and so, you know, you always have to factor that in. Things can change quickly uh, in the NFL when guys hit 30 um, sometimes. But if. You know, we could see, you know, what what I saw in those games last year. I definitely would want him on the team. All right. So you're not at all discouraged and I'm not either. I, I, I'm hearing anyway from you about the fact that he had zero sacks last year, eight, eight quarterback hits and just over 100 pass rush snaps. I mean, that's pretty damn good. That's good. That's good productivity there. He had some additional pressures with that, I'm sure. But, you know, I'm I'm really not concerned about the lack of actual sacks there. And and frankly, Zadarius Smith two years ago had a lot of that going on where he got a he got a fair number of quarterback hits but he wasn't converting as many as he needed to to sacks and that's okay if as long as some pressure gets created the Ravens secondary can work with that and and hopefully generate some plays off that yeah and I, I remember that that season for Zedarius and and I did see kind of some similar things with with McPhee a couple opportunities where he just missed you know he was right there and the quarterback just got the ball out uh and sometimes that happens but then there were a couple of occasions uh you you mentioned the twist game earlier there were a couple of occasions where he ran a twist game and he was the guy who was picking inside for the defensive tackle who would then loop around Jonathan Allen got two sacks just in those six games that I watched because McPhee uh was able to get the uh, left tackle shoulders turned perpendicular to the line of scrimmage creating a real soft edge soft corner for Allen and he was able to able to pick up you know a relatively easy sack so even though he didn't get credited with the sack, he he created that sack. Yeah. So that's why I'm I'm okay with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on and talk a little bit about Shane Ray, because he's another pass rushing lottery ticket the, the Ravens have uh, acquired in these last couple of days. Some upside certainly at age twenty-six. So he's four years younger than McPhee. He just actually turned twenty-six yesterday, shares the same birthday with Brooks Robinson. And uh, uh, just a little bit younger, that's all. And uh, a former first-round pick, number 23 in 2015. Uh, what do you see there? Yeah, I watched uh, probably two, all, almost got through three games. I probably was about two and a half games uh, in on Ray from last year. And I would say his calling card in terms of pass rush is an outside speed rush. Um you know, he's I didn't see as much in terms of a bull rush. Uh, I didn't see a ton of counter moves. You know, every now and then he would kind of work an inside move off of that outside speed rush. Um, he's not as powerful a player as McPhee. So, you know, different body types, different types of rushers. But I would say a power game is not necessarily raised game. It's more about speed and quickness and agility. Um, 
But it's interesting what they would do with him in time. So obviously everybody knows Rocco's Von Miller is a great rusher. Uh, they drafted Bradley Chubb really high last year. So uh, you had those two guys sort of, you know, as bookends. And then sometimes uh, on third down, yeah, on third downs and obvious passing situations on other downs, they'd have both of those guys, but then they'd line Ray up in the B gap, like a two-point stand. So he wasn't necessarily in that three-technique role because he'd be off the ball a little bit and standing up, but they'd line him up in that B gap, and they'd run all kinds of twist games between those guys. Um, So, you know, you get a lot of motion because you have three, you know, quick, fast, explosive guys moving all over the place, uh, creating a lot of confusion and chaos for the offensive line. So, I mean, I think that's really where his game is, is that uh, you're going to let him speed rush outside and you're going to use him in rush games and move him around. Okay, so you you actually see him as a guy who will move outside and sorry, inside. And I'm really not expecting that, to be honest. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I would say that's how Denver used him. Mm. I don't necessarily know that that's the best way to use him, but I want to make sure that I'm I'm painting a clear picture of this. So it's not like how the Ravens use Zadarius Smith. He's not putting his hand mm. in the ground and lining up on the outside shoulder of the guard. He's maybe two yards, three yards off the ball, but uh-huh. inside uh, in that B gap between uh, the center and the and uh, no, excuse me between the guard and the tackle. So different, right? And then they would move him. Uh, at the snap. So he might loop outside. Chubb might pick inside. He might loop, uh, you know, outside. And oh, I just said that he might loop in. He might pick inside and Chubb might loop outside. So they would move him around. And sometimes it would be like a one gap twist. Sometimes it would be a two or three gap twist. So I think he's a, uh, a what they wanted to do with him was sort of use him as a movement kind of rusher, not necessarily line him up over a guard and say, hey, go beat that guard. But let's, you know, uh, stunt you a gap stunt you two or three gaps and take advantage of your mobility uh, and try to create some opportunities that way. Okay. I'm, I'm in agreement on that way. I think Martindale, it's maybe again, a question of snap count with him that, that Ray is a guy kept fresh that could be more effective, probably also kept with a lower risk of injury with reduced snap count. I think that that goes pretty much without saying, but, but that he's a guy that, that Martindale will find a way to scheme and get value from him. That I think could be exciting. I, I think we'll have a limited chance to see this because he'd really have to be forced into full-time action on the outside. But if he does have a breakout year there, he could provide comp value for the 2021 draft. So if he, 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 he's he got signed to a one-year deal, he could leave after one year and obviously have, have a decent contract and give the Ravens a, a comp pick from that. So I like, the, I like the ticket in general, but I don't think there's a particularly high probability that he makes the team week one. And, you know, there's a lot of risk of injury and ineffective with, effectiveness with him. But, you know, I'd say less. He has, he's got a lower chance to make the team even than a fee. And I just want to set reasonable expectations here and, you know, maybe say 35% chance he makes the team. I'm in agreement with that. Uh, I definitely feel like he's he's you know a longer shot to make the team uh, when compared to McPhee. Um, I know we'll talk about this uh, probably later on, but you know this kind of foreshadows it a little bit. I think with the Ray signing and, and some of the other stuff, I know we'll talk about. You know, DaCosta sort of creating this op, you know this environment of competition, right? right? So let's let's bring guys in, low risk deals. Uh, you might look at the roster numbers and say, man, you've got a ton of guys at this position. Why do you, you know, you're just going to keep bringing these guys in. Well, bring these guys in, let them battle it out. And let's see who earns a roster spot. Let's see who earns a role. You know, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I like that approach. Sir, I think Harbaugh certainly has indicated that the frying pan really needs to be on under, uh, or the gas needs to be on under Tim Williams at this point. And Tim Williams should not look at these two guys as, that much in the way of competition, frankly. Tim Williams is a pure to me rush outside linebacker, not ideally suited to bring to the inside. Maybe that maybe that'll be the case in a way, but I think that wastes a lot of what the speed he brings to and the elusiveness that, that he can bring you on the outside and even to stunt inside. I think you know, Tim Williams brings you potentially much more on special teams because McPhee and and, and Ray are not going to be special teams player at their age and fragility. It's it's a matter of, uh, you know, how much does Tim Williams want it? I, if I were Harbaugh, if I were DaCosta, I'd want to see how much he wants it. Uh, you know, I, 
the rumor has it that his own out of shapeness and unpreparedness was what caused him to be a healthy scratch at the end of last season. Uh, I don't really think Bowser is in any jeopardy from these guys. He's the backup Sam, and I don't really see any other competition for him on the roster. The, the notion of Bowser moving to the inside doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because I don't think they really have another guy they can trust at Sam linebacker to handle those coverage responsibilities. Uh, maybe you feel different about it, Michael? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> Bowser is their best Sam linebacker in terms of coverage responsibilities. He, he before Kenny Young, maybe you could make the argument he might have been their best coverage linebacker in general because uh, he's really good in pass coverage. Uh, you know, his issues have been more with run defense and generating a consistent pass rush. You know, he's shown some pass rush ability at times, but I think if you looked at the different elements of his game, uh, you know, he really kind of has has had some struggles against the run. And I agree with you on Tim Williams, too. I mean, I think, you know, you're trying to send that message that, look, you've got the ability. I mean, everybody can see that. We saw it in the preseason and we saw it early mm-hmm. at points in, 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 you know, last season before he dealt with injuries and then kind of got himself in the doghouse. So that's great. But you know, it doesn't help the team if you can't do it on a game in, snap in and snap out basis. So um, it's got to be hard when you're a player not to think about it this way, when they bring in other guys at your your position, quote unquote. I mean, sometimes, you know, that's that's just on paper. They might have different roles or they play a different kind of game. But uh, on paper, they bring guys in at your position. It's got to be hard not to sort of look over your shoulder a little bit. But I would hope that they always take the approach that if I just go out and do what I do, and play my game, then that's going to take care of itself, right? I don't have to worry about these guys. So hope he takes that approach because uh, I'm still really uh, optimistic about what he can do if he can really hit that ceiling and stay there. You know, if he can kind of get up the cruising altitude and stay there, <laughs> I think yeah. we could have a really good player. I mean, I, I I couldn't say more. I mean, in terms of ceiling, he's way above either Ray or McPhee in terms of what he could do at the top. And in terms of option values ahead, too, he's entering year three now. So they've got another year on him. Then they have the, the frictions of... If he had a real breakout year in either three or four, they could either sign him long term after three or they could they could use a franchise tag on him, particularly if he got 10 or 11 sacks, say, in year four and and, and not let him go. They have options to try and keep him for even longer than two years, whilst Ray and, and McPhee are, are clearly one year guys who, you know, if, if whatever they pay for them, whatever happens in 2020 is going to be at market value for both of those players. So uh, anyway, I, I think. It, it's in part a clever ploy to make sure that Tim Williams takes his special teams responsibilities very, very seriously this year because it's an important differentiating factor for him and really be a good teammate across the board in, in what his responsibilities are. You've been at camp some probably so far. I know what I have. Tim Williams has gone from being yelled at very frequently to Rosberg to in 2018 being a guy who's more praised by Rosberg on special teams. And this was during camp. Um, I don't know how it played out during the regular season. First of all, it's close to the media. And second of all, I don't generally go uh, to the to the uh, uh, practices at all for the 30 minute period. So anyway, it's it's something that uh, really I think the Ravens want to make sure that Tim Williams is serious about his special teams play. Yeah, that's that's a huge role, because uh, like you said, that's a differentiator for him uh, from those other guys, um, let alone, you know, the, the one year, you know, contracts and age status. But just this year, if we're just looking at this year, uh, that's really a way, in addition to what he does uh, on regular defense to to really separate himself for those guys. And so if we can just like I said, if we can just get that bird up the cruising altitude and just stay there, <laughs> uh, I think we could really have something fun to watch. All right. All right. Life's good. Okay. Well, the third guy the Ravens acquired, let's talk about him a little bit. Michael Floyd, another wide receiver, uh, 6'3", 220. Uh, He was an outside guy in Arizona, uh, primarily did play some slot because Arizona likes to put, what, about 11 wide receivers on the place on on, on the field sometimes. But no, seriously, he, he, he played mostly on the outside. And that's what the Ravens need. They need some good size on the outside still. And I think they're still sifting through what they have. You know, we've already the acquisition of Seth Roberts, even though Roberts had been a slot guy in Oakland, was something I think because the Ravens believed he could play on the outside. And Miles Boykin and Michael Floyd are, you know, give a couple more options on the outside, maybe to go with Chris Moore. Uh, but the, but they're very limited. They still are very limited in terms of what they have available on the outside. And uh, and Floyd comes in, I think, very similarly will compete for a spot with that wide receiver group, which is now looking more crowded than we thought possible probably a month ago. 
a lot of bodies in that room now, a lot of bodies in that group, um, a veteran presence. You know, he, he's been in the league since 2012. You referenced his time in Arizona, had some good years there. I think he had a thousand uh, receiving yard season, either in 13 or 14, somewhere in there. So, uh, and then a couple 800 yard seasons. So, you know, has had some production out there uh, with Carson Palmer and Bruce Arians uh, has bounced around a little bit since then, uh, since the Arizona days, I think he's been with Minnesota. He was with Washington last year. I think he might've had a cup of coffee with the Patriots uh, in their postseason run um, maybe two years ago. So I watched a couple of games from last season with Washington. Um, you know, didn't play a ton of snaps. I think he had like 10 catches, uh, 10 catches for maybe 100 yards, maybe a touchdown on the year. Um, the Week 16 game, I think he played the most snaps he played all year. That was against Tennessee. Now, Josh Johnson was that quarterback. Um, we're not going to say anything negative about Josh Johnson, but I'm just saying you need to factor that into uh, your evaluation of Michael Floyd in that game. Uh, Washington moved him around a little bit more. He didn't play exclusively on the outside. stuff like that so sometimes he'd be the point guy in the bunch or the inside guy or you know so they moved him around a bit but I think his best fit is on the outside as you mentioned uh at 6'3 220 obviously he's got the prototypical body for it uh and it's interesting now when you look at their 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 receiving group and some of the bigger body guys that yeah. they have you mentioned Miles Boykin who's 6'3 uh Jaleel Scott is 6'4 uh, Antoine Wesley, a UDFA for this year, is 6'4". Quincy Adeboyjo, who we sometimes forget about, but is still on the team, is 6'3". So you've got like five dudes who are 6'3 or taller. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that these guys are going to mind bringing up their names. I'm just saying in terms of competition, they probably have more of those body types uh, in that competition than I can remember uh, in, in, in a number of years. Well, the Ravens have had years... They haven't always had a bunch of six four and six five guys, though. We all remember Himes or Streeter and uh, who's the guy, Clarence Moore, and players like that. But but they've they've had typically they've had a bunch of guys six one and up on the roster at the ninety point because they they want to whittle down from that group to try and find the bigger bodies they like. They, with, with what's strange about this group is that I think Floyd honestly is a very close comp to Boykin in terms of body's type and what he brings to the field and some of the control and and also the big one we haven't mentioned yet is run blocking I mean he, he'd been a good run blocker before and, he, and it's certainly something that the Ravens like to have in their wide receivers so hey that's a that's a a positive attribute to have a big guy I don't know that we know yet whether Jaleel Scott is going to be any of those things uh, you know, he's he is supposed to be more than what we've seen so far. And let's let's hope he, he comes on and has a great camp. Uh, I think I can think of three things that, that brought me optimism for Floyd. And the one was the good size for run blocking. The two was the thinness of the outside receiver. So we talked about those two. The third one is he's got experience as both a kick and punt returner. And so if you want to save a roster spot and get a receiver, Maybe he takes Cyrus Jones' spot. I'm not saying it's the best idea. I'm just saying it's a, it's maybe what the Ravens are thinking here is that, hey, we'll have a competition in camp. We'll see what Cyrus brings us in other ways besides as a returner. And, hey, if, if Michael Floyd could be a return guy, then maybe he's the right guy. Cyrus Jones, I believe, is in year four right now. So both of them are UFA after this year. So there's no particular advantage to keeping one or the other in terms of option value for 2020 and beyond. So anyway, I'll, I'll – I think that is a possibility of what they're thinking. That said, I think Michael Floyd is, is down there with Shane Ray as, as in terms of his chance to make the team, probably about 35% also. Uh, and, yeah, that's that's interesting. That, I did not know that. Uh, shows you I, I needed to do more homework. I did not know that he he had experience returning kicks. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, I think that, that that's probably something that uh, maybe – you know, uh, gives him a, a, a little bit of an advantage over some of these other guys who don't have that ability. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you in, in terms of, of probability to make the roster. He's probably down in that same category with Shane Ray. Um, you mentioned the similarities to Miles Boykin. They're like almost exactly the same size. They're both mm-hmm. 6'3", they're both 220. Uh, one ran 4'4", Boykin ran 4'4", uh, at, at his combine. Floyd ran 4'4", uh, at his combine, uh, the, where they, where they, in terms of metrics, where they differ is in the agility drills. Miles, mm-hmm. Miles Boykin was in like freakish level ad- right. ad- 
agility drills. And I think uh, Floyd did his at his pro day, and and they were the opposite of freakish. He was he was on the other end of that spectrum in the agility drills. But uh, both guys from Notre Dame. Uh, so they have that in common. The other thing, and I, I never like to speculate about this kind of stuff because I don't know anything about it, but uh, it's been documented, it's been reported that he's had some off the field issues uh, in terms of, uh, you know, some suspensions for, um, you know, violating the league's policy on substance abuse. So that's something that, you know, is just there uh, as, as part of his profile. OK, uh, just to say, let me, let me follow up on that, Michael. So you're saying he, he, he may be in the program at the first stage where it's not known publicly, but then they test him again and, and it's a four game suspension. So he's, had, he's had a four game suspension. OK. Uh, already that might have been two years ago I again like I said I I don't want to you know just throw these numbers around because I should have you know actually written them down but I know for a fact that he's had that four game suspension that I did I did see that report I just don't remember which year it was in okay so I mentioned reasons for optimism I do have you you have to be as balanced as you can be with this kind of thing the guy's a 52.8 percent career catch rate that's not particularly good beyond that the last three years, he's just had 24 catches in 26 games since leaving Arizona. So he's a little more comfortable, probably in the dome, probably working with the same quarterback for years. He had he had a better chance, uh, or you know, he's more comfortable anyway with that. But his catch rate didn't go up. It was 53% at Arizona, and it's been slightly less than that in his time since to get him down to 52.8% career. And what dropped dramatically since he left Arizona was his average target distance dropped to just 4.7 yards. Now, that is short. That means a lot of his passes are probably coming in the backfield or they're, you know, a lot of real short out routes, uh, you know, pick routes, all kinds of slants where they, they should be higher percentage catches, and he's not getting them. So that worries me. Yeah, that's that is a troubling sign uh, because, you know, if, if you were just to isolate it and say, all right, I'm a little bit concerned that his a dot is, is, you know, is going down. But in addition to that, he's not, you know, increasing his catch rate on those shorter depth of targets. And, yeah, that that is troubling for sure, because initially when I heard that, I was thinking, you know, just the first part of that. Well, that's, you know, not playing in the Arians offense. You know, Bruce Arians mm-hmm. is a vertical, you know, attack down the field kind of guy. Uh, but then, OK, that's fine. You go in these other offenses and maybe they don't use you that way. But then your catch rate should go up. Right. If they're mm-hmm. using you on these shorter targets. So uh, that is a little concerning. But. He like we've talked about with Ray and and I guess McPhee to some extent too. He's going to have an opportunity to come in here and compete, you know. And so uh, if you can can show that uh, maybe you can improve in some of those areas, you've got uh, a pretty jumbled group like we just mentioned earlier right now. And we don't know yet how many receivers they're going to keep. I guess you know historically it's probably been what around six or seven, some somewhere around there in the, in I mean, the past. It's been five at times and, and it's okay. been six at other times. Seven would be a lot. Uh, I think the Ravens are a team, given their depth of the position in particular, are more likely to keep seven cornerbacks than they are to keep seven wide receivers. And that's often a trade off you make for special teams choices. So but, but, you know, this year, the way to change one is to keep a wide receiver as your return guy instead of a cornerback. Agreed. Agreed. Let's move on. Let's uh, let's get to the mailbag, I guess, this week. We had an outstanding set of mailbag questions. In fact, they're so good that we're going to have to say to, to defer some of the questions about usage. And we just got fantastic usage questions. Uh, let's talk about the other questions that are in the mailbag. Josh, what do we have? Sure, sure. Um, uh, well, let's start with this one from Eli. Even though uh, you guys have talked about this as you've gone through the three guys, but real quick, which of the three guys has the best chance of making the team? You go ahead and start, uh, Michael. For me, I think it's McPhee. I, I guess I probably laid that out and all the reasons why I think that. Uh, so I won't, you know, belabor it again. I guess right. age and injury are the things that could maybe cut cut against him. But uh, outside of that, if it's just on the field, he he'd be my guy. Yeah, he did. He definitely did more in 2018 than the other two players. I, I'd put him ahead as well. Uh, some familiarity maybe with the defense here because there's still a lot of the same stuff, even though it's Martindale instead of Pease. Uh, I think may help him. And I honestly think of the guys they have, he's the best bet to be able to move inside and provide some inside presence on the pass rush that for quickness and picking and the other things that they got out of that Joker role from Zedarius and, and from other players in the past. So I'm at 50% on McPhee. I'm at 35% on the other two. So if you think about it this way, I think out of these three players, you better assign about 1.2 roster spots between them. 
All right. Uh, Edgar wants to know, suddenly there's some intriguing options now at Russian linebacker. Uh, will there be room on the 53 for Bowser and Tim Williams? And what about a position change? It's risky, but could Bowser be turned into a good inside linebacker? You want to start with that, Michael? Yeah, I, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, because of Bowser's coverage ability, I think there's room on the roster for him as that as that backup Sam linebacker. Williams, obviously, we talked about his ceiling uh, as a pass rusher, so I, obviously we think there's, there's room for him. That position change... Um, it's not the first time that that's been mentioned. Uh, you've probably heard the question before, too. I think people look at Bowser's coverage ability and think he probably could be effective inside. Um, I'm still spooked by the Kamalai Correa thing. Uh, different players. Bowser's much more comfortable in coverage than Kamalai was. But I just think when you've got a guy uh, like him who has that ability and can line up outside and be that Sam linebacker, can line up over a tight end and cover a tight end and still give you some rush uh, in pass rush situations, you keep that guy there um, and you let him do that and you don't move him inside. That's that's exactly right. And and you know what? That marginalizes so much what Bowser is good at because the thing he'll do for you better is to be on the field on that third down and provide you flexibility of who rushes the quarterback. So because you can drop him to cover and he can take effectively a short area zone, he can be the guy that, that outs that run running back. So the running back releases late and he's going to get you that first down. Well, Bowser can make the tackle quickly on him. It allows players like the slot corner or Levine to come on the blitz, slot corner of the dime. And that's what you look for really more than anything on third down, particularly third medium, is you want to get a free run at the quarterback to force that throw out quickly or, or to or to get the hit or the sack that's going to that's going to disrupt the play. But it's it's too difficult to get the get pressure in a one on one matchup on time. So I wouldn't be as worried with that. I'd be worried about how, how can you disguise who's, who you're actually going to be bringing to get a free runner on that play. And Bowser gives you a much better chance with his skill set to do that. Yeah, that disguise is a huge part of what they do, too, on defense. So that's an excellent point about being able to use him in a way that hides who's really coming and who's not. So you don't think bringing these guys in speaks negatively to the development of Bowser? I think honestly, both those players are completely safe. Uh, the only, you know, we've we've been through some doghouse situations with various players. I think Bowser's a hundred percent safe, honestly, at this point, because I don't really think there's a backup player who does his role. So after Judon, you don't really have anybody else, and Bowser has two years of of left with the Ravens. I just I don't think there's any way they let him go. With Williams, I think he would have to really do something to play himself out of town at this point. Um, if he if he comes to town, it comes to camp, good attitude, working hard, I think Carbaugh will, you know, unlock the unlock the kennel and uh, and let him loose. And I don't think there's there's much that McPhee or Ray could do honestly to win the job away from him. I think McPhee will keep his inside Joker role. I, th- I think Tim Williams is the obvious, you know, rush linebacker uh, uh, that the Ravens want as either the backup or starter this year. I, I wouldn't give it to, to Ferguson yet. Okay. All right. Well, James uh, really likes the Shane Ray sign-in. He said he was high on him out of the draft and wanted him to be a Raven then. Uh, but it's wondering, has he ever played any special teams? Could that, help that, I, that I don't know. Um, that's something that I'd have to go back and look up because the games that I watch, I was really only watching him on defense. So the question was about Shane Ray, whether he's yes. ever played. Okay. Uh, we probably do have that information available right. to us, but I, but I do not have it right in front of me either. All right. Well, he's, uh, James is wondering if that could then help him make I, the I'm, team. I'm just going to say it'd be really unusual for a player like Ray coming in in his fifth season who's primarily been an edge rusher to be used in that capacity. Okay. And he's had injury problems, too. It's, it just, it'd be very unusual. All right. Well, Hugh wants to know, we've heard about Willis Smith and others. What other uh, undrafted free agents not already chronicled uh, might have a shot of making the 53? You know, I don't know enough about our UDFA squad to say. I mean, Willis is the really interesting one because there's a lot of duplication of ability there, but there's also a lot of possibility that over the next couple of years that they could lose both Brandon Williams and Michael Pierce. And so I could I could definitely see a situation where they try and 
keep everybody they've got there uh, in the in the among the one and three guys. Yeah, for me, I I guess I'd probably look at it more in terms of position, and then I guess I could I could talk about specific guys. So I think. You know, inside linebacker or just linebacker, I guess, in general. But I know inside I'm kind of talking through it, (laughs) working through it in my mind. Inside linebacker uh, would maybe be a spot where you could see a guy. I know that obviously they've had a history of keeping some UDFAs at that position before. Um, You know, it was Chris Board uh, in recent times, Zach Orr before that. So if. Yeah, Peanut, exactly. How can I forget about Peanut? Um, so, you know, if you look at some of the guys that they they have brought in uh, in that position, so whether it's Silas Stewart, EJ Ajaya, uh, if I mispronounce your name, EJ, I'm sorry, or Ataro Alaka at Texas A&M, same to you, Ataro, if I, if I mispronounce your name, but I apologize. So I think EJ and Otaro are sort of, it just in my in my evaluation of them sort of more of those two down thumper type of inside linebackers where Silas Stewart uh, and you mentioned Peanut uh, there can really sort of in terms of play style reminds me of uh, and body type of Peanut he's right around 225 227 pounds moves really well uh, around the field so one of those guys uh, wouldn't surprise me if they were able to carve out a role on special teams. Uh, for this year and then you know over the coming years maybe sort of work their way uh, from special teams uh, in into a defensive role we, we've seen that happen uh, with you know those those Ravens inside linebackers that we've just mentioned yeah it's one of the really fun things and I, I I really do not want to overstate what I know about the the guys who are on the UDFA roster right now because I don't know them and I haven't watched them but that's one of the really fun things about the preseason is watching these guys get a chance to play and you know we're consi- continually surprised by someone emerging from the pack last year you know three running backs uh, Delance Turner and Edwards and who's the other one Thompson right all got playing time, I believe, on the roster at the NFL level during the season. So, uh, you know, it, there will be guys. I, I, I virtually guarantee you that, that there will be a UDFA who makes this roster. I think Willis is, is is probably the best bet among all the players to do it. But there's there's other guys as well who, uh, who certainly will have a chance. It'll be fun to watch them in camp. All right, let's close out the mailbag with Marcus's question, who's wondering what players are there are still out there in the free agent market that you'd like the Ravens to go after? Oof. If any. That's a good question. That's a good question. I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you because yeah. I actually haven't thought about it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who, who's left at inside linebacker that might still be a reasonable call because I do think if you're going to go through the trouble to sign the guys they just did at outside linebacker and wide receiver where the positions are kind of crowded, I think you could do the same thing at inside linebacker as well. Uh, now, they may want a three-down guy. In which case they, you know, they're they're going to have to pay a little bit more money for that guy. As we've always said, is one of the one of the issues with having a, a three down inside linebacker is cost. Uh, if the Ravens were willing to go to more of a full substitution, meaning they're willing to go to a quarter defense or uh, and have Levine and Clark say out there playing in the middle of the field on third down, then I think they've got other. They would have an option to go out and get a two down thumper or, or you know focus on a couple of two down thumpers they have on the roster. But inside linebacker would be to me the position where if they have a guy they liked as much as they like Zach Brown and Darren Lee got traded and Zach Brown has already been signed. Uh, there just aren't that many. I, I don't know who's left in the in the inside linebacker market, but that would be the position that I'd, I'd probably focus on. All right, that makes sense. Uh, we'll just wait and see as OTAs start tomorrow. Um, all right, Ken, there's a big film study event, first film study event, I guess, on uh, June 18th. Do you want to share about that? Yeah, we're really looking forward to that. And Michael uh, and I have been uh, discussing this for a while. We've wanted to do it, but we finally made a made a uh, arrangement with the restaurant for them to give us a, a room to have our uh, our uh, presentations in. And we've got some interest coming in from from various people on, on doing presentations or either being there uh, to just learn how to to do their own analysis. And I think this is an interesting thing. There's a lot of people out there doing analysis uh, right now or that would like to get into it, and they don't really know how to get started. They don't know how to do a study or they don't know, uh, you know, whatever, maybe some good online sources for information. Uh, We're going to go through a lot of that on that night in terms of where are some good sources for information, what makes a good study. Uh, Michael's been through that experience himself, and he he is 
uh, in a large part self-taught in terms of analytics, but also very well taught in terms of of uh, your scouting academy work. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I come from an analytics background myself as an actuaries where, where studies are necessary to do things. So we'll have some ideas about that. We're also very interested in people who have material. And we've had some good people on the show do this to present their own material. So if you'd like to join us for that, your uh, event fee, which is only $10 anyway, will be covered, as will your meal for the night. So we'd love to have you for that. If you've got a, pre- a topic you'd like to present for us or pre- present for the group, uh, we think that'd be a lot of fun. Think of this as like a, a mini Sabre convention for football fans. And uh, you had an idea about, about using this as a Father's Day gig, right, Michael? No, I can't take credit for that. That's your wife. That's Maureen. Look, you when when the brains, you know, come up and, and these great ideas, you got to give them the credit. You can't steal that. So she had that excellent idea to, yeah, this is going to be right around Father's Day. Uh, it's going to be about football. It's going to be about the Ravens. Bring your dad out. Right. Come out, have a meal, have some drinks. Let's, you know, have some fun sitting around watching football, learning about football, playing some games. Hopefully your dad will pick up the tab like mine always does for me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it'd just be a great time all around. You know, you can you can definitely look at this as as a Father's Day outing. And think about all those tickets your dad has given you over the years. If you're a family who has football tickets, your dad probably paid for them, and so he effectively gave you the tickets all these years. A great way to pay him back, and then maybe not actually have to pay him back. So if you're a student in school somewhere, you you take him to this event. I'm sure he'll pick up the tab at the end of the night, and you'll uh, uh, you'll have a good time, and hopefully a memory you guys will uh, will appreciate from this. But anyway, we we expect to have a lot of fun with this event, and uh, a lot of buzz about it right now in terms of people interested in either presenting or coming. And uh, one of the first people who actually signed up was was an architect and his dad who were interested in in coming. I thought. That is a great pairing for this and a great idea. So, uh, all right. So, uh, how do people important. sign up? How do people tell okay. you they're information? They're interested. Thank you for that. By the way, the information is out there on the RSR boards. But if you want it from me directly, contact me at Film Study Ravens on Twitter or contact me uh, Film Study Twenty One at Verizon dot net by email, and I'll send you the information on the event, or and I'll, I'll get you on the list also for updates to that as we as we move forward. All right, that sounds good. Um, all right, so go to Russell Street Report, especially go to, over to the boards to get all the information for uh, for June eighteenth. Ken, what do you, else do you have up on Russell Street Report this week? You know, we'll have the podcast coming out, but I don't. I did not write an article for that this week. I'm involved in the usual knee jerk reactions. Michael, you're probably getting involved in that uh, sometime pretty soon. I would expect uh, they should add you to that list. By the way, for, for when. When we have events occur that that you're uh, reacting to it, because I'm sure your take is is very well appreciated. Uh, follow me uh, at Film Study Ravens on Twitter. Other than that, uh, Michael, how do they get to your material? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Abukari A B U K A R I. Uh, don't have anything out there on Russell Street Report right now. Working potentially working on a project uh, on one of these three guys. I'm not going to say who it is, uh, and and hopefully that'll be coming out this upcoming week. So keep your eyes open for that. Uh, other than that, uh, I'm back in the Scouting Academy that just started this past Monday, so I'm in bunker mentality, just watching a bunch of film and trying to crank out a bunch of scouting <laughs> reports. Uh, but one thing I wanted to throw in call back to the uh shane ray question about special teams i was able to look Mm -hmm. it up while we were going through some other things so in his rookie year 2015 33 snaps of special teams uh next two years only five snaps between 2016 and 2017 but then last year uh back up to 31 snaps on special Mm -hmm. teams so there is some ability there uh to play on special teams coverage units that's still that's two snaps a game that's not 31 snaps per game average that's two snaps per game we're talking 31 right yeah some yeah, yeah exactly exactly so a low number um but has done it occasionally <laughs> all right so we won't expect that uh this coming season but, but you, ne- you never know so. <laughs> you never know things could change but right. yeah that if you're looking back at that doesn't uh doesn't portend very well all right guys well we are a couple more weeks closer to the start of the football season so enjoy your upcoming week
At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture, and when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.